Have you found yourself saying, if only I could do this other thing, I would be happy or satisfied. If only this happened, I would be happy. Or you know you need something, but you don't know what that is. What does it take for you to love what you're good at? Today, I'm honored to have with me a friend, someone with whom I share many interests, and that is a brilliant mind and soul. Rebecca Sachse is a professor of cognitive neuroscience and associate dean of science at MIT. She's an associate member of the McGovern Institute for Brain Research and a board member of the Center for Open Science. She's known for her research on the neural basis of social cognition and has her own lab, Saxe Lab, and a long list of awards and recognitions. The last one is that she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Science for 2022. She has a TED Talk watched over 3.5 million times and has been featuring a Netflix documentary about babies, just to name a few things. <laughs> In this episode, she shares parts of her journey to becoming the amazing scientist she's today with its ups and downs. And with her, we talk about the value of curiosity, the importance of good mentors, the impact of not being able to do what brings joy in your life. We talk about burnout the trap of seeking external validations, the importance of having a healthy balance in how we perceive failure and success, how to recover love and passion for what you do, the importance of checking your own definition of success, the power of a pause and choosing what to pause from. <laughs> She gives a new perspective on me time for women, She shares some of her findings about our moral judgments, about other people's intentions, and our ability to read other people's emotions, the importance of humility and revising our expectations. We talk about identity in times of change, and she also talks about universities as a place to grow and learn. We have so much to learn from this brilliant woman. So, are you ready? Have you ever wondered what makes people capable of creating changes that impact their lives and the world around them? What is their way of thinking, their mentality, their patterns, their perceptions of the world, their reactions to different life events? What influences them? My name is Cristina Puyol, and I invite you to join me in this adventure where we will explore together the mind of change makers. Today, I'm honored to have with me a brilliant woman. She's devoted to the studies of human social cognition using a combination of behavioral testing and brain imaging technologies. She is best known for her discovery of a brain region that is specialized for theory of mind tasks that involve understanding the mental states of other people. She continues to study this region and its role in social cognition. She has shown that it's involved when we make moral judgments about other people, and she's also exploring the possible role in autism, a condition in which the ability to understand other people's beliefs and motivations is often impaired. Another theme of success research is the development of the human brain during early infancy. Rebecca Sachs is Canadian, study a degree in psychology, philosophy, and physiology in Oxford, England. She obtained her PhD from MIT, 
and was a Harvard Junior Fellow before joining the MIT faculty in 2006. Then she was awarded tenure in 2011. She's now an associate investigator of the McGovern Institute and the John Jarb, I think I'm pronouncing it right, professor in brain and cognitive sciences. In 2012, Sachse was chosen as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum, and she received in the 2014 Trollon Award from the National Academy of Sciences. She has a TEDx talk watched over 3.5 million times, has her own lab with a sexy name, Saxe Lab, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and has a long list of awards and recognitions. The last one I read is that she was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Science for 2022. She's a mother of two beautiful boys, and beside all of that, she reads at least a book a week. So help me in welcoming this amazing soul, Rebecca Saxe. How are you, Rebecca? Thanks, Christina. Well, now I'm feeling a little embarrassed. <laughs> and I didn't read your curriculum, which is long and amazing. <laughs> ridiculous yeah so we've known each other for i don't know like 15 20 years or something like that yeah. and um i haven't spoken to rebecca in a while so i'm super excited to have her here and reading her curriculum she's been busy very busy <laughs> giving birth to children and giving birth to many research projects so it's a privilege to have you here and it's so nice to be connected with you again thank you my friend and uh, I want to first always let people know a little bit about you, like a little bit about your journey. Why did you choose science and the way you, you went from Canada to all the way to Oxford, you know, to study with Harry Potter? So <laughs> yeah, what, what made you, what took you into that journey of science? That's interesting. Well, uh I think actually at the bottom is just, I'm, I was always really curious. Um, and I remember, this is a long time ago now, but I remember when I was a kid thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up, I wanted to always keep learning. I know this is something that's true of you also. And before I knew what kind of studies I wanted to do, I thought I just wanted to be able to keep studying. So the first thing I thought I wanted was to stay at university. And I thought if I could become a professor, I could stay at university for my whole life. And I have, <laughs> so that was I managed to figure out a way to stay at university. Um, I had an idea that you could, if you went to university, that was where you got to ask the hard questions that nobody knew the answer to, the hardest questions, that, that that's what people asked at university. So that was when I was really little, like 12, I wanted to go to university and stay there. Um, and I did that. Um, when I was a little older than that, I thought I didn't know what I would wanna study. Like, would I wanna study history? I loved reading novels, like would I wanna study literature? Um, I liked hard questions, would I wanna study philosophy? Um, but I also loved the idea that everything we see around us, all the complexity, that you could understand it by making it simpler, by knowing what its simple parts were. I, that to me felt amazing. And I remember when I was little, the idea that, you know, chairs are made of molecules, like that was very romantic and mind-blowing. <laughs> um, and then like, to, you can get a whole person out of DNA. And then the craziest one is, 
your thoughts and feelings, like what it feels like to be you, that's just neurons. <laughs> so that was, I just thought those ideas were crazy and romantic and amazing. Um, and so I thought I would want to study them. And then I, I guess I found out that this, you said, you know, the name of the program I went to do at Oxford was philosophy, psychology, and physiology. Um, and it was when I heard that that existed that I thought, oh, wow, you could do all of these. You, you could study philosophy, like what the big questions and psychology, you could study thought um, and physiology. You could study how that's made out of the pieces of the mind. Um, and it just sounded amazing. And so I wanted to do it. Um, yeah. And it was amazing. <laughs> so <laughs> I was lucky. It was basically everything I hoped it would be. It's all a very idealistic and romantic story, though. Like I... I would never have thought of going to England. Um, you know, I'm from Toronto and, you know, my parents are from Toronto. My grandparents are from Toronto. Uh, like the idea of leaving Toronto wasn't even in my mind, really. Um, but then when I was 17, so this happened twice in my life. My dad took me on a trip, just me and my dad. <laughs> when I was six, he took me to Disney World. And when I was 17, he took me to England. Um, and we went for one week, just the two of us. And we spent one day in Oxford. And it was so beautiful. <laughs> the, you know, the stone buildings, as you said, Harry Potter, Harry Potter hadn't been written yet. But yeah. the stone buildings and the colleges and the, it just, I just fell in love with it as an idea. And I saw people there, you know, who, who studied there. And for the first time, it occurred to me, you know, I think before that, the idea of studying at Oxford was something people did in novels. You know, that was not really a thing that real people did. But when I saw there were real people who went to Oxford, I thought, wow, could I do that? <laughs> um, so, yeah. So it was just kind of a fantasy. And then I applied and I got in and I went. <laughs> there you go. And then from there you went to MIT, right? You yeah, to MIT. I went That's to when MIT. we met. Yeah, and I was yeah we met. I think I was a grad student at MIT, and I had been a ballroom dancer at Oxford. Mm -hmm. I had been a competitive ballroom dancer. Loved that. Oh my gosh, I miss dancing so much, Christina. Um, <laughs> yeah. But when I got to grad school, I found I couldn't keep up ballroom dancing because as an undergrad, I had been dancing sort of thirty or forty hours a week, and that was not possible once I was a grad student. So I decided to try salsa, mm -hmm. you, which mm -hmm. was great. I danced salsa as a grad student and a little bit as a postdoc, um, and that was amazing. And and how was your journey as a woman studying science and going through the process of going to where you are? I think that's a great question. It's very hard to know because, of course, I don't know what it would have been like as a man. Um, I'll say, so I've had three... Um, mentors, official mentors, people that I worked in their lab and they trained me to be a scientist. And it didn't really occur to me until afterwards that all of them were women. My, when I was an undergraduate, my main mentor was Kia Nobre, an amazing woman. Um, and then at, in graduate school at MIT, my main mentor was Nancy Kanwashram. And then after that, when I was at Harvard, my main mentor was Susan Carey. And they are all absolutely brilliant incredibly brave um super sharp like take no prisoners like brilliant minds um and all women 
And I'm, I don't know in retrospect how much easier my life was because um, I worked for women the whole time. Yeah. Mm. So that was amazing. I will say I never, as a, as a young scientist, I didn't feel that my gender was relevant. When I was in my 20s and, you know, single and childless <laughs> and, and early, you know, I, th- I was incredibly lucky. I had amazing mentors. I had incredible opportunities as a scientist. As you, you know, as you said, I came into my field, my discipline, when it was uh, new, the tools for brain imaging were still new. And so it was pretty easy to make big discoveries because we have a whole new tool for studying the mind. You know, almost everything was still unknown. So it was easy to find big new things. That was really fun, but but really lucky. It was just luck that I started grad school when this tool was just new. Um, so I felt very charmed my early years. And I, I feel like I didn't really encounter the gender asymmetries that arise in science that much for myself um, until I became a parent. What was the difference then? Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, you know, th- these questions are very hard. I, <laughs> okay. I, you know, there's a science. My job as a scientist running a lab and as a professor, it would be easier if I could work more than full time every week all the time. Right. Mm. There's a lot to do. And if I could be at work you know, 50, 60 hours a week, it would be easier. Of course, probably I would just take on more work. So this is a slightly ridiculous thing to say. But um, the thing is, I love my work. I love working. I love ideas. I love mentoring students. I love teaching and I like doing them well. And so I would like to have the time to do all those parts of my job really well. And there were two things that happened when I had kids. One is I had much less time. Um, and that was hard for me. Um, and the other thing was, I don't know how much this happened and how much I interpreted things this way, but I think people see you differently when you're a mother, you know, and that was something that I both experienced and feared and was anxious about. It's like, you know, when you are just a professor, a brain science professor, all people think about are your ideas. <laughs> um, and when you're a mother, people start thinking about your body. That's so weird. <laughs> like, um, and it, yeah, it just feels like you enter a room in a different way when you're bringing a child. You know, attending a, a faculty meeting with a kid is different than not trying to go to a conference when you also have to have a kid with you. Um, two kids. I think the world is getting better this way. Like it's getting more possible to say I'm willing to come give that talk, but I have to bring a baby. Um, I did that sometimes. <laughs> I have some actually, you know, it's funny that I say this because in fact, I have amazing memories of um, like, I-, I was invited to give a talk in Denmark and I had a four month old and I was like, okay, I'll come give a talk, but I'm bringing a baby. <laughs> and they, you know, the conference helped me find a babysitter and the babysitter had the baby and I was going back and forth from the conference and the baby. And so in some sense, this is a very, lucky time to be a parent um, and a scientist but it was definitely it was a lot harder and it took me away from my work a lot um ways that i didn't want i wanted to work so you you're really passionate about what you do 
and you will spend there like 24 seven from what I hear. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am right now, although, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I know I've, you know, this a little bit, but what happened when I couldn't work enough um, and and maybe for other reasons, maybe because it had just been a long time was um, I started to lose joy in it. So actually not being able to do my job well and feeling like I was always just barely doing the minimum to keep up and trying to get by rather than being able to really invest in it is that actually I stopped loving it. Um, and so after, when I had been a parent for about three, you know, I, I have two kids or in a year and a half apart. And after three or four years of that, what happened was I stopped loving everything else. I couldn't invest in the other things that make me happy. I couldn't dance anymore. I didn't have enough time for friends and I couldn't do my work well. And doing my work badly made me not like it, it turns out. Like if I can't do my job well, if I feel like I'm just trying to do enough to get by, then I don't, I don't love it. And so, uh, you know, at, after a few years of that, I started thinking maybe I wanted to quit. <laughs> I really seriously thought of quitting or switching, doing something else, finding a different job. I just felt like just hanging on by your fingernails is mm. no way to, to get joy mm. job for me. So yeah, yeah, it didn't, it didn't work all the time. And in about 2017, 18, 19, I was very seriously thinking I should stop. I didn't love it anymore. And I wasn't doing it very well. And it felt like just keeping a hamster wheel turning, you know, mm -hmm. I had done mm -hmm. it for a long time by that point. So I kind of could, like I could do the next thing and the next thing, just barely. I could write the next paper to get the next grant, to pay the next student to, you know, um, but I was thinking why? <laughs> I can, but why? And I think that that is such an important thing to hear because many people that just barely do what they need to do at their job and they're not happy, you know, and they wonder why. And many times they, you know, they're like, I'm just doing that because I don't like my job. But okay, if you only do that, how are you going to love your job? You know, so it's like a little, you know, tail that is biting itself or like a fish after its tail, however it says in English. And, yeah. and, you know, how are you going to make a change if you barely do, you know, because you're never going to love something that you barely do. And so it's really, it's really for me, eye opening to hear it the other way around where you could only just barely do because of other reasons. And then you stop loving your job, you know? So I think that is an important message when people are just barely doing something and, and not loving it. It's like, well, well, there's, you know, something needs to change if you want to change how you yeah. feel. And the yeah. other thing I think is that, I think I got into a trap of looking for external affirmation, right? Like looking mm -hmm. for other people to tell me I was good enough or, you know, to get a fancy paper or a big grant. Like what would tell me I was good enough was if I won a thing or if I, you know, mm. got paid a thing. And yeah. um, actually that also was terrible for me. I need to not do that because, you know, if I like this, <laughs> this is true of me. If I write a grant and I don't get it, so I, I apply for money and I don't get it. I feel bad for months, sometimes years. If I write a grant and I do get it, I feel good for like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it does not balance out. Yeah. So if the thing I'm trying to do to get external validation or it affirmation, just, it doesn't hold me up. Like I have to actually like it myself. 
and I think that when I was pulled so hard in other directions, and you know, the other thing is when many things happened in my life at the same time, right? So when I had little babies, also, you know, there were there are other things pulling me away, big things. My husband was having trouble in his job. My father died. So, you know, there were many other things that, you know, and he, my father had a stroke, so he was very sick before he died. He needed a lot of care. And it was also, you know, very emotionally draining and, and devastating to watch my father die slowly. And I, I was so close to my father. And so, you know, it wasn't just the kids. It was the kids and my stressed family life and losing my father and, you know, and also having done the same job at that point for, you know, I guess uh, 10 years at some point, right? Like once I'd done a job for 10 years, all of those things sort of happened at the same time. And um, yeah, and just left me feeling like there wasn't anything that was really um, sustaining me. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe if I, if I could achieve some particular thing, like if I could get some grant or some title or, but th those things weren't helping me that much either. And then, um, you know, here's the funny thing that happened to me. So I, I got asked by the McGovern Institute to give a talk at a conference called the Global Women Leader Forum, I think, um, which was in Berlin in 2018, I think. And uh, so it was a gathering of about a thousand women, all leaders in their fields. And I had three really helpful experiences at that conference, which I had gone to like, just because I was asked, I hadn't thought I needed it, but it was amazing in a lot of ways. But so the first thing was, I met a lot of people who were not professors. And in my life, almost everybody I know is a professor. And so the the things like the external feedback that I was looking for is very meaningful to other professors. Like, did I get published in this journal or that journal? Did I get this grant or that grant? Do I have this title or that title? But to people who are not professors, they all sound exactly identical. <laughs> so like the things that I felt like a failure because I didn't have, no one at this conference had ever heard of. <laughs> so that was the first thing that was really helpful. I was like, oh, my notion of success has become so narrow that like it's literally invisible to normal humans. So that was the first helpful thing. He's like, all right, like slightly broader perspective, what counts as success. And then I had two amazing conversations. The first conversation was with one of the most memorable women I've ever met. I can't remember her name, but I remember <laughs> meeting her in the elevator because we came down to the elevator to breakfast and she was wearing a tracksuit. There was a cream colored tracksuit with leopard stripes down the arms and matching leopard stripes down the legs and matching sneakers, cream colored sneakers with leopard stripes on her sneakers. And I was like, and gold, leopard and gold. I was like, wow. And so I was obviously looking at her and she said, oh, do you want to have breakfast together? And she turned out to be the highest ranking civilian in NATO. Oh, wow. I know, right? So we talked about her job and, and her life and how she became that job. And she said, you know, at the beginning of my job, it was really satisfying. I was really good at it. And I, you know, and I got promoted to this, you know, very powerful job. And, and it felt really satisfying that I could make a big difference in the world. Like I was coordinating military policy for all of NATO. We would bring all the generals from all the countries to make joint military policy. And that felt like a really big deal. But eventually, when you've done that for enough years, like 
you bring another general to make another military policy. And it just feels like so much hoo-hoo and ha-ha and like, why am I still doing this? And you know what I think would be really satisfying is if I could actually meet the people I'm helping. Like if instead of trying to make these global policies, if I could meet individual people whose lives are changed, like that would be would be really meaningful and felt, help me feel really satisfied. Not that was great. And then the same night at dinner, I met another woman whose name I also don't remember, who worked in refugee resettlement. And she was amazing also. And she told me her story about how, you know, how she had got into this work and how she had fallen in love with it and how gratifying it was. Like her work was to help mothers and children escaping war and famine resettle in Europe. And she told me about like seeing these families that she was able to resettle in their new lives. But she said to me, you know, eventually after I'd done that for enough years, I started to feel like for each family I help, it's just a meaningless drop in the bucket. There are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other families that need help. And I feel like I can't make a difference. And I feel like if only I could work on some kind of multinational policy that would actually make a difference to the way that European countries coordinate their policies towards other countries, then I would be satisfied. <laughs> and I was like, ah. <laughs> Everyone in the room has an idea that if only they were doing the other thing, then they would be satisfied. Mm. And of course, that was how I was feeling too. Like, you know, my job, it's very satisfying. I get to study all, yeah. But if only, so anyway, I left that conference being like, okay, I need to take a deep breath. <laughs> like changing jobs is not the answer, right? You could feel this way in any job. Like these are the most amazing people I've ever met and they feel this way too. And that experience of those two conversations in one day, I felt really, you know, and the fact that the ways I feel like a failure are invisible if you're not an academic. Those three messages made me think, okay, I just need to pause. I need to think about who I am and what I want. And the answer is not going to come from, well, for me, it's not going to come from external awards, recognitions, external definitions of success, or changing my job. You know, like those are not, instead, what I have to do is find what does it take for me to love that. Um, yeah. So that was that was my transformational moment. What does it take for you too? Because it got cut a little bit there. What does it take for me to love what I'm good at? Okay. This is so powerful. I just love this story because it 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 has so much in it. And first of all, is this thing of looking for the external validation, whether in titles, accomplishments, jobs, projects, uh, you know, name it. Uh, looking there for your happiness, for your fulfillment is, is not the right thing. And it's making your own definition and it's going to change over time. And then, you know, just going for that thing that is, is actually inside of you because you make that choice, you make that definition. And then from there, you find that fulfillment. And I think this story is amazing that you had that experience. Yeah, it's really great. And then, and then, then you know what happened with, on the way home? I missed my flight. So I ended up sitting in the Berlin airport, just in the waiting room for a whole day with nothing to do because I had missed my flight. And I just sat there and thought about it. It was like, it was kind of perfect. It was like the perfect end of this trip was like, now you will just sit by yourself in a room and think. <laughs> you will not go home. You will not do your job. You will just sit in a waiting room and think about it <laughs> yeah and process this experience exactly yeah i mean like we can take so much from this and and i think 
the power of the pause and just pausing <laughs> for a second to have a wider perspective of what is what is important, what you're defining as important in that moment. And like you're saying, my success was this window because I was all the time around the same people, you know, until I was with other people. And it's like, oh, <laughs> that is not so important. I love this. I think we can learn so much from this. So that's, it that's was very so cool. helpful for me. And it made me see that I, it made me see that I deeply needed a break from my hamster wheel. Like I needed to step out of the hamster wheel for a little bit and think again about what I love. And then, so that was 2018. In 2021, I did it. I took time off. I went by myself to London and I made a deal with myself that I would not try to be productive. Like I took time not to write grants or papers or when, you know, try, like I just went by myself to read and to see if I could find what I was curious about again, to make myself just curious again. And um, and that was amazing. So I took a break, I just, I read and I went for walks and I thought about what was interesting to me in the world. Um, and since I came back now to my job, now I love my job again. So that you said to me, it sounds like you really love your job. And that's definitely true now, but it wasn't true. It wasn't true from like 2017 to 2021. I, ne I really needed to take a break and go back to the beginning of just feeling curious about understanding human nature and understanding all the complexity around us and trying to make it simple in ways that were exciting and interesting to me and not for not for any of those external reasons and not to maintain my professional work, but just to find where I was still curious. And once I had that back, then I can do my whole job. I can go back to teaching and running a lab and mentoring students and running a university and all those things, but I needed to find the curiosity in me again first. So, so you think, you know, you took some time off, you were alone, you were reading. What do you think was the, the click, you know, that changed that was the time. So the span of time that you were disconnected, was it changing the activity? Was it the time to think? I mean, probably was all of it, but yeah, I guess, yeah, that's, it's probably all those things. And also, I mean, I, I told you this story already, but it's, it's funny that I knew I needed something, but I didn't know what I needed. So I, I took time off to leave Cambridge and my lab and my family to go do something else. But I thought what I needed was lots of conversation. I needed to meet lots of new people and travel and give lectures and listen to lectures that I needed like a totally new stimulating external environment. And so I planned a trip for spring of 2021 that would be as much like travel and meeting new people and talking to new people as possible. That I would travel all over England and Europe and meet people as much as I could and go to lectures and go to classes and just learn from other people. And then it turned out to be 2021. And so I didn't do any of the things that I planned. I didn't give any lectures. I didn't go to any lectures. I didn't meet any people. I didn't travel anywhere. <laughs> I sat by myself in an apartment. Um, and it, so in retrospect, I think like sitting by myself in an apartment was amazing. And I just read and thought, I didn't really talk to other people about it. I, I just mostly processed by myself. Um, I talked to maybe one or two people, but but already people I already knew, I didn't meet any new people. Um, and it was 
amazing and perfect. But would the other thing also have been perfect? Maybe. Like maybe I knew I needed something new and I was right and anything new would have worked. Or maybe I knew I needed something new, but I was totally wrong about what I needed. And the universe gave me what I needed instead of what I thought I wanted. I don't, I don't know. Um, and of course I can't go back and find out. Um, but so all I can say is that what happened was I did yoga, I went for runs, I read papers because I found them interesting, not because I thought they were the thing I needed, right? It wasn't a plan. It wasn't optimized. I didn't make a list and do it. And I accomplished, as far as any external measure is concerned, nothing. I didn't write a book. I didn't do, I just read and thought. Um, and that was perfect. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe anything would have been perfect. But now I feel like the, this whole last year and this coming year, I feel so sustained by all the thoughts that I had on that trip. Like I still have, I have more ideas than I know what to do with more joy in my job than I know what to do with. Um, and I feel sure it comes from having taken that, that time because I didn't feel this way for years. Mm. I love that. And, and I think it's, you know, it's nice to hear that the time off help you. You know, when people hear, what should I do? And they say, meditate, you know, oh, no, no, we want to do something. Our mind wants to do something. And you're right that you're not going to know whether doing the other thing would have worked also. <laughs> but it's interesting that your mind plan what it knows how to do. So you know how to, you know, if I want more ideas, more creativity, let me connect with more ideas and more creativity from outside. And you really didn't do that. You know, you just had silence in a way, you know, silence from all the noise from outside and connected with your own creativity. That's that's my interpretation of it. Whether the other thing will work or not, who knows? But for people that cannot take like a, a sabbatical, a year or time off for whatever reason, whether it's time, money or whatever, um, it's good to know that just maybe doing a pause from their useful activities could bring you know some new things new ideas and and relief and maybe it is you know just 10 days you know doing a silence meditation or maybe it's a you know 10 days of dancing retreat or something different that gives them the space to have that connection yeah yeah that would be interesting yeah, also to study yeah, yeah. for me it turned out that a pause and put, like a pause specifically from being useful is exactly what I needed. I needed mm. to take a pause from everything I did being about its effect. Like the, you know, at home as a parent, it's like endless doing things for other people, right? Nonstop, other people, other people, other people. And then at my work, you know, running a lab. So there's 12 people that work for me and then teaching and everybody in my class and then trying to you know, work for the university and make it better. Like, everything, every minute of my day was sort of trying to be useful. And I think it was incredibly helpful for me to put that down for a bit, right? to yeah. just say, okay, I'm gonna take a little time that is not supposed to be useful for anybody else. Um, <laughs> and then try to find energy inside myself. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I think I can be so much more useful to other people if I come back more whole. And I think it's a brave decision because it's probably not the, not the most popular decision. You know, you are a woman. If a man did that, maybe I'm, I'm going to say this, but it's true. And if a, if a man did that, it's probably not judged the same way. If a woman, a mother does that, 
I and definitely feel that way. Like yeah. a lot of people's reaction was, I can't believe you would leave mm. you know, your husband and children. And I really felt like that was gendered. Like mm. if, a, if a husband had left for work, I don't think there would have been nearly as much. I can't believe you would do that. I can't mm. believe you would leave. Mm. And um, yeah, I mean, whoops, I'm a woman. <laughs> like, I, I still need my life. I need my intellectual life. I need my emotional life. I need my space. Like, I love my kids. They're wonderful. I'm very glad to be with them when I'm with them. But it was great being away from them. <laughs> you know, this is, and I don't have any guilt about being away from them. You know, mm. they were great. They were fine. They're still great. They're still fine. Um, but to me, it just feels like of course, parents would need time away. And of course, mothers would need time away. Like, it's mm. not just fathers that would need, they would have needs to go work or to go do something outside and yeah. have time to be a person. Um, and I, yeah, so for me, I feel like I really want mothers to feel that time away from their kids, if they want it, is, a, is possible, is socially acceptable, is as you say, is potentially brave, is potentially good for everyone in the long run, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of, I've seen kind of these messages to mothers, like take me time, get a manicure. <laughs> I'm like yeah. not interested in manicure at all, but mm -hmm. also um, that implies that me time for a woman is bodily. And this is the thing that drives me crazy. Mm. Like me time for me is in my mind. It's not in my body. It's always been that way, right? I mean, except for dancing. Dancing mm -hmm. is the one place where my mind and body connected perfectly. But but otherwise, what I want is time to think. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've definitely had a lot of parents, mothers, female parents say to me, um, wow, I would never be able, you know, I would not, I would never be able to like emotion. Some parents, some mothers don't want to leave and that's great. If you find your emotional satisfaction being with your children, then great. Um, but for other people, I hear them say, I would love the time to myself, but I wouldn't be allowed. I wouldn't be allowed to take it. And um, I wish that it would be easier for women to also find that they need time away and take it. Yeah, it does seem like a current a current message in our society is that mothers should always be with their children and I, I find that frustrating yeah yeah we are evolving in many things and in some others we still have to evolve <laughs> well it's also you know in some ways this is going backwards right like mothers are expected to be with their children more now than 50 years ago yeah. it's actually this is something that some people in my lab have studied, actually speaking of moral judgment, that, you know, I mean, you and I probably remember this, when, even when we were kids, kids were given much more independence mm -hmm. than they're given now. It was much more normal for kids to do things by themselves. And, you know, a generation before us, even more normal, right? Like kids would play with other kids all day long. Kids would run errands and go to the store by themselves and go to school by themselves. Like that was normal. And, the idea that every child needs their own parent at the playground all the time, right? Even when they're seven, eight, nine years old, right? Or that they can't go to school or the store without a parent with them all the time. Like, that's a new idea. That's not an old idea. It's kind of, and um, 
there's really interesting like sociology. I'm, I was hearing about this, that a sociologist had studied a community, had studied where the kids go in this community in the 70s. And he went back now to see their kids, where they go. And now the kids in that community stay in their own backyard. But their own parents, who were the kids who grew up there in the 70s, went all over the neighborhood, right? Played together in the parks. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's just that we have growth yet to go. I feel like there's some strange ways in which we're going back. Um, mm -hmm. We're making up new rules. And um, here's an interesting study. Uh, uh, Ashley Thomas, who works in my lab, she did a research study where she asked people to make moral judgments of mothers that leave their children alone. Mm -hmm. And she showed that um, although people say what they're concerned about is the danger to the child, it's actually a judgment of the mother's intention. So if you say, um, you know, this mom left her seven-year-old at home for half an hour, because you know she wanted to do something for herself people judge that as very wrong and very dangerous and seven-year-olds could get in so much trouble at home but if the reason she left her kid at home her seven-year-old at home for half an hour was because she had something she really needed to do for somebody else like her father needed an emergency medicine so she had to take it to him then they say it's not dangerous for the seven-year-old mm. right so they yeah. there are these moral judgments about giving about independence of your children. It feels like they're about danger, but they're really about our, our new moral expectations of mothers. Um, yeah, which I sometimes find suffocating. <laughs> I want my kids to have more independence and space and for me to have more independence and space. Yeah. Than our current norms particularly allow. And with all these studies that you've done about the moral judgments that we each have, um, what are some, I don't know, unknown discovery that you've made or something that has shocked you about judgments? You know, when people ask me about my science, I always want to talk about what I haven't done yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm most excited about the next thing. That's always been true for me. So I'm like, okay. But so, so what I want to tell you is what we haven't done, but I hope we'll do someday. Um, we can talk about that too. <laughs> The thing that um, the thing that we did about morality, this is a long time ago, but um, it's cool. It was very cool at the time. Is so what we were working on is um, how you take into account somebody's knowledge or intention, right? So the very same action, it means something different based on what the person was thinking. And we studied this in a very simple context, right? So for example, you know, one of the examples we used was. You put white powder in somebody else's coffee. Well, if that's a nice thing to do or a horrible thing to do, it really depends on what you think the white powder is, right? Mm -hmm. You think the white powder is sugar, then that's a perfectly nice thing to do. You put sugar in somebody else's coffee. If the white, if you think the white powder is poison, is strychnine, then that's not a nice thing to do. And it turns out that what you thought you were doing matters more for moral judgments than what you were actually doing. So if you totally innocently believe that this white powder is sugar it's in a jar labeled sugar in the cabinet but it but you and you have no way of knowing that it's been um contaminated with poison then it's still a nice thing to do when you put it in the coffee even if you make them sick and if you buy strychnine and you think it's poison and you intend to kill somebody but the strychnine gets swapped out with sugar so it's actually just sugar it's still not okay to put it in the coffee even though it's just sugar and you don't make them sick. So that was what we were studying. We were studying when we make moral judgments of other people's actions, 
how do we use what they think they're doing rather than what actually happened to make that judgment? And so, you know, this is, again, this is old work for me, but it was very cool at the time, like to find so that, you know, a brain region that when I'm thinking about you, this brain region has in it information about your thoughts. It's me thinking about your thoughts. And we found that by measuring activity in that brain region, we could predict people's moral judgments. So we could tell whether you were going to say that putting the poison in coffee was, was okay or not okay, based on the thought, not based on what the, the powder really was. And then the, the thing that got, I guess, the most famous was we used a tool called TMS that lets us um, disrupt brain activity. So we could basically put a magnet next to this brain region and make those patterns less different. And then we could change your moral judgment. So we could make you switch your judgments to be more based on what actually happened and less based on what the person thought they were doing. Um, and that's cool. It's very cool to, you know, in some sense, that was the original dream. Like, let's find out how these abstract thoughts that we have are built out of our brains, out of the neurons in our brains. Um, but, you know, that's 10 years ago for me now. And so <laughs> like, what's all next? science. <laughs> yeah. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And um, yeah, so we did, you know, I, we studied that for a while. Things that we're doing now, like I'm really interested in how we understand other people's emotions. And um, so here's a cool thing. We tend to... So we get some of what we know about other people's emotions from their facial expressions, mm. but we way overestimate how much we get from faces and bodies. So if you ask somebody like, how do you know what someone else is thinking, feeling, you'd say, well, I look at them, I look at their face, I look at their body, and I can read their emotions. And that's true to a point, but it's much less true than we think. And the way you can show that is if you take that face or that body, like you take that video, and you take it out of context. So you show just the face and the body, but nothing else. Actually, it turns out it's incredibly hard to tell what somebody's thinking and feeling. And even it's hard to tell if they're happy or sad. Oh, wow. Take, yeah. I know, right? So and especially if the video is taken in the moment. So if something either amazing or terrible is happening and you're recording the person's face who's reacting to it in the moment. So not later when they're thinking about it, but right in the moment when it's happening, faces and bodies actually are incredibly ambiguous. It's amazing. Like you oh. look at the videos and even I having done this many times, I find it hilarious that I cannot tell if this is a, an amazing thing that's happening or a terrible thing. Um, and this can, it can be minor things, but it can be really huge life-changing things, like mm -hmm. um, huge amounts of money or winning or losing um, you know, sporting matches for the top players in the world, or a child comes home from the military who you thought you wouldn't see for another year, or you witness a bombing, like really incredibly different things. And you see the face and it's so hard to tell what's going on. And so the, so the research question for us is, well, so how do we know? Because we often do know what other people are thinking and feeling. And it turns out we're getting much less than we imagine from faces and bodies. So where are we getting it from? Um, and the answer is that we are unconsciously 
sensitive to lots of other information in the context that tells us what's probably going on. And we're not aware how much we're paying attention to the context, anything we know about this person, anything we know about the room, anything we know about the object they're holding, anything we know about the background of the situation they were in. All of that has unconsciously gone in to giving us ideas about what they might be feeling. And then when you have those ideas, then the faces and bodies can be very informative, right? So if you if you know what might happen, then actually you think about this, you'll see this in real life once you start paying attention to it. Actually a completely blank face, no expression at all, can be hugely informative if you know the possibilities, right? Mm. So you can see, for example, devastating grief in a completely blank face if you know that that's that that might be what's going on right that that's the background of the situation so that's something that we've been studying is like that unconscious part where you come with expectations and i guess i would say what's interesting about that is it's a very interesting double-edged sword right it's mm -hmm. we know much more than we possibly could by having these expectations but we could be very wrong by having these expectations right and yeah. so if if you have a sense of what might be happening for somebody, then you can read into their face. Like, I mean, this, this is very real from relationships, right? Like you see your partner, you think they're angry. Like actually someone else who saw only their face would not get anger, might get sadness. But we come to the situation with so much expectation for what they might be feeling. And then you don't even know that it's not in the face. It's in your expectation of them. So anyway, that's one thing we're doing right now. Oh, that's exciting. Also because I've heard it actually in other things, you know, in, in when we talk about, you know, anything with personal development, we talk about the expectations and where you come from, because where you come from is going to dictate what you're seeing, what you're thinking, what you're saying. And I I know like a story it's, it's from Tom Bilier. He was talking about uh, a case and this is about what they say, but it comes from the expectation about uh, uh, they had like two employees and one was uh, on the bad eye of this other leader of the company and one was the preferred, you know, and the preferred screwed up and the not so preferred actually saved the whole thing. And then Tom Billier told this leader, this, this uh, you know, companion, I mean, the, he was also one of the, the CEOs or whatever from the company. And he told them, you know, actually this guy that you don't like saved the situation and the guy started like i knew i knew he was gonna screw up i knew it was gonna be his fault and he's like let me tell you this again he saved the situation but in his mind he was so stuck with the expectation that he was gonna be the one screwing up that he was not listening and it's kind of that that when you have an expectation you come from a different position and you're going to interpret things from a different position right yeah so, yeah, so it's so important sometimes to like reason it <laughs> and be aware of your own, you know, where you're coming from. Even, yeah, you know, and what especially, is... you know, reading other people's emotions yeah. is something we feel like we're good at. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's quite something in this research, like we show people these videos. It's amazing without the context. You really aren't. You really can't tell. Yeah. And we're not aware of that in everyday life because we're we're just constantly processing the context. Yeah, yeah. So. And so, how can that help us to relate better? If we know, like, if we know now, I know that I I cannot read your face. 
<laughs> the mask has helped us to <laughs> not always how can that help us to not bring into the equation into our relationships things that do not belong to that situation mm. I, mean, I feel like this is more a question for you than for me but i, <laughs> I guess that i the thing that well what i hope the science shows us is a lot of it's exactly what you just said in your story a lot of what we think we saw in the outside world, we actually brought in our expectations. That's just true. And it's mm. true in cases that we have no idea it's true, right? Yeah. We would say, no, I saw him in his face, but you didn't. I can prove that. <laughs> because if I show you that face without the context, you cannot see it. Mm -hmm. And so, if you, so maybe just in all parts of our lives, it would help. I guess, you know, I'm very in favor of humility. <laughs> as like a badge of everything. Like, I think we should be humble about how far science has come. I think we should be humble about what we can accomplish in individual lives. Not unambitious, but humble. And I guess the best thing you could learn from this research is the same, is like, what feels like we know it from the outside world is actually an expectation you brought into the situation. And a little humility could make space maybe for more curiosity I, don't know. I mean that's nice to say it's hard to live by though right mm, yeah <laughs> yeah well yeah but it's also a practice of knowing you know I think it's helpful right now with all the extremists that we have everybody going to the extremes is knowing that your extreme is filled with your information and your expectations and so if you open a window to at least listening to a different you know, expectation in a different situation, then maybe you can have a wider and more broad yeah. view of the world and your expectations can be, you know, a little bit wider and not so much of the same thing. And that will not make you confront so much the opposite because there won't be an opposite because you've tried to widen your perspective. It doesn't mean that you accept or that you agree, but it means at least that you won't confront it directly and it won't sound so foreign to you. You know, like like you were saying, you were open enough when you went to that conference to see a different perspective, a different expectation of your success. And then that made you change your perspective. It didn't mean that what you thought was wrong. It just you open up to something bigger. And I think that I, we need that. We need that today when there's so many extremes colliding and wanting to be right, you know? Yeah, um, that's a nice time. Like it. <laughs> I love yeah. to philosophize. I remember um, this is probably not interesting to the people listening, but I remember so many of our talks where we just kind of philosophy, do a little bit of philosophy in, in a very small way about life and about many other things and uh, about painting in the river. We did that a couple of times, which I thought it was hilarious because I didn't paint. <laughs> so it's like, okay, let's paint. Okay, so that was cool. So what is, um, regarding uh, young women that come into science and young guys that come into science, what will help them uh, come into this field? Because I know now there's a lot of sets, you know, a lot of saying that Young people just want to be influencers. And to get where you are, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work. So what will help someone to get into the science world? Well, it's always hard to ask an old person what young people should do because, you know, 
Oh, come on. You're not so old. I know, but also, <laughs> you know, it's different. It's a different yeah. place to book Generation. a now than yeah. it was 20 years ago. And yeah. um, what I see that I worry about is I see a lot of cultural messages which are intended in a good way, but which I worry they might backfire, which say that young people are vulnerable and powerless. Mm-mm. And they're intended to be protests, right? Like to protest against vulnerability. But I worry that they're also sending a message that asserts vulnerability, right? that says like, if you're a young person in science right now, you're totally vulnerable to capricious or malicious um, senior people in your field. And, um, you know, there's some there's something right that's it's right to protest against vulnerability and against unfair distributions of power. We should protest against that. But I also want to lessen people's feeling of vulnerability. Um, and I think you can both do that as a framing, like to as you've said, right? We don't have to be so attached to certain narratives that make our sense of self um, depend on external people. But I think we can also do it, you know, as as we've said in this conversation, like reaching out to other kinds of people, more people. Um, yeah, I think the the thing I would say, certainly to young scientists entering my field, is don't put yourself in a situation where you would feel extremely vulnerable. Right? Have many connections, many people you hear messages from, many people you work with, have connections with your peers as well as with your supervisors. Um, and, and, you know, so that, like proactively feel that your narrative of your own life isn't vulnerable to one other person's definition of it. Of course, that's not just advice for young people, um, but I worry right now about young people being told to get into science. You, you have to go through a phase of being extremely vulnerable to one older person's control over your life. I don't think anyone should have to do that. And I certainly don't think young scientists should have to. And I don't think they do have to. I think there's lots of ways to become a scientist without becoming so vulnerable. That's what I hope anyway. That's what I'm trying to build. I'm trying to build a world where we can have mentorship and training and learning from people who know more and have more experience without um, extremes of vulnerability. And just to go a little bit back to what we were talking about before the burned out and uh, we talked about this actually off camera about the identity what what do you think because i know a lot of people when they get to a certain point their identity is so tied to their titles to their situation to their work to whatever situation it can be you know being a husband being a wife being a leader being a ceo being you know in navy seal being um you know playing in the olympics and then having nothing afterwards or a big change afterwards uh, so what helped you navigate that and i know we've I talked think a little i'm still mid-journey on that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, see, I totally see what you're saying and deeply like really hear that i can tell from where i am right now if I lost all of my professional titles and my professional power, that would be hard. Because right now for me, where I'm at, 
I I really like that. I really like the role I get to play in the university and the power that it gives me and the status in a room and the chance to make the world a better place in the ways that I want it to, right? I like that I have power to to do things I think are important in science and in the world. Um, but it's not just that I, I, I know from talking to you from self-reflection that I both want to use the power to make the world a better place for other people's sake, but also it's quite satisfying to have grown into this power, right? I, I mean, I worked for 20 years to get here. It feels good. And um, if I lost it all, that would be really hard. And I see that all of our lives have that kind of arc. We're all gonna lose it all. And sooner or later, um, and that what it takes to live a full life with grace is to be able to go through those transitions, to lose things sometimes, and to be able to know who you are at the other side. So I see that. Um, but I think maybe that's a next phase. <laughs> like a next phase of growth for me would be trying to figure out, can I have enough identity as an intellectual, as a curious person, as a friend, as a reader, maybe as a dancer, can I find all those other things that I am? Um, so that if I lost my professional identity, I would still know who I was. I think that that's an interesting challenge. I'm certainly not ready for that right now. It would be, it would be really hard for me if I had to do that right now. But I think it's important to hear in that process because everybody like you're saying are going to go through that process one two three ten you know you know how many times in life in different things not just talking about titles and i think it's good to hear from all the steps of that process where is someone you know and whether you've transitioned whether you are in the process whether you're in the process of thinking about that transition whether you know and now that is going to happen but just knowing where where is your identity and what are your tying to your identity that yeah. can make a transition harder or not, you know, whether that's going to happen or not. And yeah. so where is your identity? And I think that's when we over identify with something is when we can suffer more. And that can be applied, for example, to the extremists that we have. If you over identify to a flag, you may have you may you may die for that flag or for that religion or for that belief, you know, and then you are over identifying to something yeah, yeah. Even, even to a soccer team <laughs> yeah. yeah i said there's still room for me to go here oh yeah 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 <laughs> what is a funny story that has happened to you with this title you know when you when you approach someone without them knowing who you are and then telling them i don't remember off the top of my head whether that's a thing that happens um you know, and to some extent, when people don't know, that's totally fine too. I don't, I don't need to be, I don't need to be famous. I, I just, I really like universities. I've said this before, and I want them to be the best they can be. Um, and there's so many ways for them to be an amazing place in the world, right? Like a place where you spend four years in your adulthood, just learning and growing and becoming an adult and confronting hard problems and places where work is done on basic science out of curiosity, not to make money, not to, um, you know, sell things, but but to, to teach and to learn, like that's an amazing institution that we have. Um, and I, I feel really lucky I get to work in one and I get to try to make one better. Um, so that's the place where 
I like that I have power in the university and the rest of the world. It's, you know, <laughs> associate dean is not a thing really in the outside world, um, which is also fine and probably very good. Um, although, yeah, I guess I, <laughs> I remember that not, well, okay, so here's a funny story. I was on um, Netflix. Uh, they had a, a documentary about baby development called Babies. And so they did a profile of me and the um, work I had done because I, when I was, um, my, so my lab became one of the first labs in the world to scan the function of awake human babies. So we had little babies awake inside an MRI machine watching movies and we scanned their brain activity to study how um, brains grow complicated functions. And um, I wanted to do that experiment for a really long time. I started wanting to do it in uh, 2006 and I started planning to do it in 2010. Um, but I didn't do it because it's really hard until 2014. And the reason I started doing it in 2014 is that I had a baby. <laughs> so I was like, like this baby, I'm going to scan this baby. I'm going to see this baby's brain. Um, and so we spent, like he was born in 2013. So we spent 2013, 2014, like trying to learn how to scan baby brains. And we kind of finally got it just as he got too old. And then I had a second baby. <laughs> so then we, we really scanned the second baby. Um, and we got some amazing discoveries about early brain function. And I spent a lot of time in an MRI machine with my babies, <laughs> both of them. I spent a lot of time scanning their brains, um, which was great. It was a very intense, combination of being a mother and a scientist. Um, and so then, so that was when they were babies. And then a couple of years later, Netflix was making this uh, documentary about baby development and they wanted to do a profile of that research. So they came and they filmed us now scanning different babies because mine were older than that. Um, and they you know, filmed me talking about my work, but they also filmed me at home with my kids um, who were a little bit older. I guess they were maybe three and four at that point. Um, and then that, you know, it was a documentary on, on Netflix. And so I guess about a year after that, we were out for dinner at a restaurant and the server recognized the kids. She had seen them on Netflix. And so now my kids think they're famous. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was on Netflix. <laughs> People recognize me. <laughs> and it's a part of my kids' identity. They're famous because they've been on Netflix. <laughs> that's hilarious and it you were also so the, nice. it's so cute it's so amazing and you were also in in uh in um uh, in a viral meme right and you, there was an image of you and your kid yeah. that was around got a lot of publicity in the wrong way <laughs> <laughs> well yeah when i so i spent all that time in the mri machine with the kid and i had this idea wouldn't it be cool to make an image of both of us in here? Because the, the science was only about the baby. It wasn't about the grown-up. But so then we, we spent a long time trying to figure out, could we get a slice through both heads, right? The baby's head and my head. And um, eventually Atsushi Takashi, who's the MRI physicist, and I got this image, right? So two two heads together, the mom and the baby. And um, I tried to, I thought it was beautiful. So I, I put it out there. I was like, Look, this is a mother and child in an MRI machine. And um I got a little interest and then somebody put a version on um facebook or something um that said that it was a picture of oxytocin being released in the baby because of the mother's love and then that which is not true and that image got millions of views <laughs> so i was like 
Yeah, it's okay. I mean, I'm glad that people love the image and I love it. Um, and I'm glad it speaks to people in different ways. And it's just a funny thing about the current world with social media that um, sometimes it's not the exactly true story that yeah. gets all the views. But anyway, I'm glad people love it. I love it. Well, that's cool. I I could go on and on and on, but it, we're going to go over an hour for sure. But I want to ask you the last question. What is the legacy that you want to leave for everybody else? You know, I've been thinking about this. I think that's a question for boys. I think boys are all about legacies. And I want to live well while I'm alive. I, I really don't even want to think about a legacy. I want to be in intense, real, authentic relationships in the present. I want to have meaningful conversations in which two people bring their soul to the moment and are there when they're there. And that, like the thing I value most, that conversation leaves nothing, right? There's mm. no, I don't want, like not a written, not a book, not a movie, not an object. And I'm really okay with that. I want the I want the thing about a conversation, the give and take of it and the meeting of it that cannot be a legacy. That has to happen in the moment. That's mm -hmm. what I want most. Wow, sounds like a dance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm I'm so thankful for your time, and I know we could learn so much more from you. But I'm gonna leave it here. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca, for your time. I'm so happy to see you. Likewise, likewise.